this, I would say, is a it's a circumstantial case because there's no direct evidence. Nobody actually saw any of the actions leading up to the crime. But as we're taught in law school from the very beginning, circumstantial evidence is exactly as powerful as direct evidence and can even be more powerful. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Andrew Hamill, who, apart from being a writer, is a former death row lawyer and law professor. He's also the author of Ending the Death Penalty, The European Experience and Global Perspective, and many other scholarly articles. Uh, I wanted to reach out to him because I read his May 2023 article, The Wrongful Exoneration of Adnan Syed, Part 1, A Straightforward Murder Case in Part 2. I think there are about 23,000 words in total. Uh, David Simon came out on Twitter, and this article was published on Quillette, which I fully understand is very controversial, right-leaning, conservative platform, but David Simon, about as liberal as you can get, came out just defending how this was just an exemplary, dispassionate dissection of this case, which became so tremendously famous on the Serial podcast. By some estimates, it's been downloaded by over 300 million people. And I was just really interested in kind of assessing this story. I'd never listened to Serial when it came out. I did listen to it. I did watch the HBO documentary that came out some months ago. And I was just kind of blown away by the way in which journalists are forced to confront with true crime, how much they apply journalism chops versus trying to appeal to an audience with entertainment and how they unpack and roll out the details of the case. And suspend some other facts. Um, That curation really intrigues me. And I thought Andrew Hamill did a really impressive job at, I think, making the case that the way Sarah Koenig approached it, at least from my perspective, um, this seems like a pretty straightforward case in many respects, but it's teased out and it's presented in such a compelling way that you sort of forget the way it's being presented has very little to do with a case that every single juror took less than two hours to come to a decision and has never expressed any uh, suspicion that they came came away from it with the wrong verdict. Um, The guilty party in this, Syed, praised his defense attorney um, for for doing just a a tremendous job. I mean, with a couple of small caveats, but on the whole praised it. So it's a, it's a really interesting case that Koenig came by from a huge advocate on the part of Syed. And at one point in Serial, Koenig actually says, uh, she plays an interview with Syed, and, and he says something along the lines of, um, you were supposed to be my savior, and now you're my executioner. Well, she's supposed to be neither. She's supposed to be a journalist. So I just... I don't know. I just found it really confounding listening to the podcast. And and I thought the documentary was far worse in just how biased it was. And I'm, as I say, a lot less concerned about the innocence or guilt on the part of this story and more just trying to understand the way it was presented, given how many facts were there and that there's so little in the way of an alternate theory of what actually happened that seems remotely plausible. And nonetheless, 300 million people listened to it, talked about it. There's these 
guilters and people who think he's innocent and all of that. Um, I'm just intrigued by that, which is why I've had on uh, Rachel Monroe with uh, true crime and women's relationship to it, and, and more recently Kim Cross with her book on Polly Class. Uh, Polly Class's sister just came out with an op-ed about the damage that a lot of true crime is doing, um, re-traumatizing the victims. Uh, all of this is where I'm more intrigued by than, um, the, as I say, the guilty or the innocence of, of this particular story. Why do these things take off and what, what does it kind of say about us, the ones that we're drawn to versus the ones we're indifferent to, you know, in terms of who's involved rather than even the particulars of the case or the merits of it. So this week's guest is Andrew Hamill. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening to Tourist Information. Maybe we could just start with your background. I apologize, but I first encountered you with this piece about cereal, and um, you had a really interesting background. So I wonder if we could just start there, please. Yeah, sure. I was uh, born in Belgium in 1968, just because my father was like a chemical engineer who traveled everywhere. But I'm an American citizen from birth. Um, got a degree in English from the University of Texas at Austin in 1991. Uh, got a, my first law degree, a JD, from the University of Houston in Houston, Texas. I grew up mostly in Houston, Texas, and also Austin. Um, and then after I got my law degree, I went to work for a small nonprofit law firm, Texas Defender Service. They still exist. And I was representing death row inmates. So uh, we were on the defense side. We did mostly appeals, constitutional law stuff. Uh, and then that was interesting. And I still did the work for, you know, part time for another couple of years afterward. But then I decided to try to become an academic. So I got I laundered my state college degree through Harvard. And as we, you know, as one has to do. Uh, and then I came to Germany because I've just always really enjoyed German music and classical music and German culture, European culture, et cetera, and really liked it here, stayed here. I was a professor for about 15 years, and then that got a little bit tedious, a lot of bureaucracy in Germany. Uh, and so I became a freelance writer and translator. So I basically write mostly about issues of sort of like law and policy uh, with a special emphasis on criminal law and constitutional law and human rights and a little bit of true crime. So, you know, that helps to pay the bills because that's a bit more interesting to people. Well, so I, I was very late to Serial. I wasn't listening to podcasts when it came out. I, I understand it's it's had somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 million downloads at this point. I would assume making that the most downloaded podcast of all time, unless Joe Rogan has surpassed it or something. <laughs> um, but what, when did it come on your radar as, as a kind of phenomenon, or were you aware of the case prior to that? I wasn't aware prior, uh, but I did listen to Serial in real time in oh. 2014 and 2015 when it came out. And, you know, just like with all the other millions of people who listen to it, I was transfixed and fascinated because, you know, Sarah Koenig did a fantastic job of storytelling. And, you know, you had this sort of transparent view of how the podcast was being made and how the producers were thinking about things in real time. And and uh, I found it engaging. I didn't really have any strong opinions about Adnan's guilt after listening to it. 
because, you know, I sort of listened to it with a lawyer's mentality and I thought, you know, they're trying to make a case for his innocence, but uh, they haven't quite got there for me yet. Maybe they've raised some questions. And then basically it dropped off my radar screen for years. And then what makes it arise where you're willing to devote, I gather, well over a year of, of your energies into dissecting it with, with the kind of fastidiousness that you did? Well, it's, I mean, it's basically obsession. <laughs> so I came here to Germany and, uh, and as I was, uh, I've, I've written actually most, most of my journalism and long form pieces have been in German. So I'm, you know, I'm bilingual and I get really interested in this true crime case called Jens Zuring. So you can look him up and I even just wrote a book about him. And that's what got me interested because the, the Zuring is a German citizen who committed a crime in the USA. So there's all these transatlantic aspects to it. Yeah. And after that, it sort of broadened out a little bit. And I thought, you know, that was that was really, you know, I, I wrote an entire book about Jens Zuring. And so I was looking for other pieces. And so my editor at Quillette, who's, you know, a friend of mine, that's why I write there. He was, I, I said, I'm really interested in this Adnan Syed case because there's been lots of developments in it lately. When I began researching the piece in like, you know, early 2022, there were court opinions coming out and an HBO documentary. And I suddenly realized, oh man, this is just going to go way, way over any conceivable length boundaries. And fortunately, you know, my editor was really understanding and he just said, okay, just take as much time as you want. And so I read the entire trial transcripts and all the investigation and police files. Mm -hmm. I sort of, you know, I treated it as if I were a lawyer looking into the case, trying to make a case in court. And the first rule that any lawyer has to understand is you always inform yourself about every single piece of information out there bar none you have when you go into court you have to have everything available in your brain or if it's not in your brain in your giant notebook and and you know i just got it i've got completist tendencies and i'm obsessive and obsessive compulsive and so i just kept saying it's going to take longer and longer and longer and then they finally released it and it was actually their most read article of 2022 i think or no 2023 and uh, so it i there was just basically I had a very generous and and forgiving editor and they gave me enough time and enough support and they did some really good fact checking, too. And that was basically why it ended up being so long. Well, and not being very German in this assessment, I'm guessing it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 words. Is that am I in the ballpark? Yeah, it's about 24,000 for both of those pieces. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so if I won't return to Germany for at least a six-year period in case I might get indicted for that plate fast <laughs> and loose. Um, <laughs> uh, I am curious, though, at what point going through the merits of this trial and, and the idea of it being put up for appeal, uh, how the case was presented to Sarah Koenig by the now defense attorney, Rabia Chaudhry, or sorry, rather, she wasn't the defense attorney, but she is an attorney, and has been the biggest advocate on behalf of, of Adnan Syed in this case. Um, does this case jump out at you as something deserving of reappraisal? Because it just struck me, it took the jury two hours to convict him. None of them have expressed any kind of consideration that they made the wrong decision. Um, Syed himself cited that the representation he got in court was, I don't know they used the word exemplary, but he was extraordinarily enthusiastic about it. 
um, maybe a couple of caveats that she could have done something else, but he felt very well represented, that she was very competent. Um, just on the merits of the case, I was just struck, how did Koenig look at this? Is it, in your view, was this an act of journalism or an act of enter- or more an act of entertainment that she was embarking on with this endeavor? Yeah, that's a good question. And in fact, that is exactly the sort of defense that NPR has invoked. Uh, so Sarah Koenig doesn't talk about the case, doesn't talk about serial anymore. Ira Glass has spoken about it a little bit, and some of the producers have spoken. And they've come and said, and they've said, you know, we were doing an act of sort of live evolving long-form journalism uh, with a personal storytelling aspect to it, not a formal re-examine of the case, re-examination of the case. And so that is, you know, that is that I'm not going to say it's a defense because, you know, nobody's really attacked uh, serial. I've just said that it has not revealed all of the important facts about this case. And so I think that is what, that's the line of defense they've used. And I think it's fairly accurate. The whole problem, though, as I go into into the pieces, is this is a murder case. Somebody was horribly strangled to death. And, you know, two families were shattered. And, you know, this this case raises important and complex questions. And I just don't think that it's entertainment. I don't think that you can take something that has so drastically affected people's lives... And simply say, well, we're telling a story and maybe we have a perspective. And I, I hate to sound like a lawyer, but I'm, what, I, what, I, what I want to sort of scream at the TV when I hear that is that's what the justice system is for. I mean, the, the, the justice system is where we hash out all the details and go into all the depth and give both sides an equal perspective and look into arguments on both sides. And I think that, you know, responsible true crime journalism has to do that, has to take into account both sides. And there are many positive examples out there, but I don't think, I mean, I don't think serial at the end of the day was one of them. Yeah. You know, I was really concerned. I, I finished, I finished serial off last week and it was the first time I listened to it. And I believe in the ninth episode or 10th episode, um, the protagonist says to Koenig, I thought you were going to be my savior, and now it feels like you're going to be my executioner. As they were probing, I think the issue at hand that they were discussing was that she had uncovered that he had stolen money that was collected at the mosque that he attended. Mm-hmm. And he just said, how is this relevant? You're trying to destroy my reputation. Why are you putting me under this microscope for every wrong thing I've ever done and not doing it to other people? I found that line immensely disturbing, the idea that she has been handed a story by an advocate of the protagonist. And as you say, like, there's not a lot of pathos in in the podcast, from my point of view, related to the remorse or loss or tragedy or grief of the victim in the story. Like, even the protagonist talking about it um, it reminded me a lot of of sort of the granular detail that OJ made in America offered about OJ, where he's constantly laughing about his wife and the mother of his kids dying. There's, yeah. there's almost never um, any emotion that he expresses about it, except how it reflects on his reputation. Mm-hmm. 
how could people think I would do this? I loved my wife. But it, it never seems correlated to the loss. And I thought that was one area where there was overlap in this story is Adnan is consistently incredulous and incredibly outraged at the idea that people could speculate he was capable of this. I'm not hearing very much about him. Koenig talks about him crying at times. We never hear that, that I, that I remember during the podcast. I just didn't feel much emotion from this guy in relation to the crime. He seemed very matter-of-fact and kind of up, upbeat throughout, at least in what was edited and presented to us. So I, I just guess like just the tenor of the podcast, um, grief wasn't out front about this yeah. in relation to the victims or, or the victim's family. Um, I just found that a very strange choice or, or, or at least highlighting it if, it if indeed it was highlighted. I just thought, what, what did you make of that aspect? Because you've, you've pointed out the victim now a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, frankly, what I would say is, you know, I, I've spoken to dozens of murderers on death row in Texas and they, you know, they range the gamut from people who I think are completely reformed and should be released. I'm opponent, I'm opponent of the death penalty completely. Um, and you know, I've spoken to a lot of criminals also here in Germany. And I'm going to say something is that basically most people who commit serious violent crimes against other people are sociopathically inclined or sociopaths because you almost need to have this constant focus on yourself, this constant focus on how events affect you and not other people in order to be in order to be capable of strangling or stabbing or shooting another person to death. I'm not diagnosing anybody as a sociopath, but I'm saying as you know, as with many of my clients, most of my clients, Adnan has sociopathic tendencies, which means he puts his own needs, wants, and desires first. He can mimic the sort of gestures and the the atmosphere and the attitude of being concerned about other people. He does. He is concerned about some other people, you know, his family members, etc. But when it comes to him being able to internalize and grapple with the fact that he murdered another human being and that she's dead forever and that this has caused immense grief and suffering, he is not capable of understanding that. And that is true of 80 or 90 percent of murderers. That is what makes them murderers. Not that they're full on sociopaths or even psychopaths, which is a different thing entirely. But that is just I, I saw that over and over in my conversations with people on death row. And the thing is, journalists do not understand this unless they have a whole lot of experience and are very objective in the way they think about things. You know, David Simon, I think, is somebody who does understand this. And he also understands that just because they have strong sociopathic tendencies and are dangerous doesn't mean they're inhuman or they're animals, but they can be very dangerous under certain conditions. And I think Sarah Koenig and so many other journalists that I've written about recently they just don't understand this they 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 go into these conversations as if they're talking about somebody uh, you know over coffee at yeah. a starbucks uh, and they don't understand that this person is in prison and has been sentenced to this very severe sentence because of what they did and the fact is 
something in their personality made them capable of that. And she didn't really understand that. And many journalists don't understand that. And the other mistake that she made is she relied far too much on Rabia Chaudhry. Rabia Chaudhry is basically the stand-in for the defense lawyer. So in many cases of very poor true crime journalism, the journalist just goes and talks to the defense lawyer. I was a defense lawyer once. I talked to journalists all the time about my clients and their cases, and you know, especially European journalists too. And I never lied because you never want to burn your credibility, but I never gave them the whole story. I always downplayed certain facts or failed to mention them. That was my job as an advocate. And I think as a journalist, you have to realize that the defense lawyer is never going to give you the full story. And I don't think Sarah Caney did enough to talk to the victims' families, to talk to the witnesses who testified against, you know, against Adnan, and to the prosecutors who also knew a lot about the case. And so you can't rely only on one side. And you also have to realize when you talk to somebody who's committed a really severe crime, a violent crime, you have to think about what are the personality dynamics that led them to that point. And you can't simply assume they're innocent. And therefore, you know, you you have to take seriously the fact, especially in Adnan's case, where there's so much evidence that they really did it. And you have to think about how would how would somebody who's very different from me react if they were guilty and if they had committed the crime and if they were now in prison desperate for attention and desperate to get someone on the outside interested? Of course, they will manipulate you. Right. And you have to really think about that. And in my view, that's one of the ways where she fell down. Right. And I mean, I think at one point she says, Adnan asks her about that. What? Why did you take this case? Well, it came to me because, as we mentioned earlier, Chaudhry gave it to her. Um, which, a- am I wrong to infer that a lot of the access, I mean, incredible access that she gained to his family, to members of the mosque, to a number of other characters, all who would be beneficial to his side of the story, um, was largely contingent on suspending some critical thinking, um, acting in a bit of in an advocate um, motivated position in telling the story. She delays a lot of the most damning details until I think the sixth or seventh episode. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I just found it interesting how the thumb seemed to be on the scale in a pretty big way on his side of it. And that seemed to be ethically okay for for Koenig. At one point, um, at one point, Syed says to her, uh, "He well, he gets gr- greatly offended when she says, I feel like I know you and I really like you.' And that's sort of why I think you're innocent.' And he says, "That makes me want to kill myself or put a gun to my head or something because you're not saying I'm innocent on the merits of the case. You're saying it's because I've demonstrated that I'm a nice person. And that's kind of the worst thing you could say to me, which which sort of, I think, speaks to your point is why is it above suspicion that he is manipulating her in in this storytelling? She never seems to allow that possibility. Whereas, I mean, as we mentioned earlier with O.J. Simpson, apparently a complete social savant. Everybody said he was one of the most charming, gregarious, um, almost impossible to not sort of be seduced by his personality. And is most likely 
a, a ruthless murderer who's denied it endlessly. So I, I just wonder if you could just speak to that, just the ethics of, of how Koenig approached this story. Yeah, that's the ethics are so complicated because first of all, she needs to con she needs to sort of to cultivate her source, and I mean the 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 first problematic ethical decision she made, if you ask me, and I really don't mean to be so harsh on her, because you know it was early days, podcasts were just happening, she had an interesting idea, and true crime was also nowhere as advanced as it is as it is now. But first of all, she had to think about. You know, Rabia Chaudhry was her gatekeeper, and Rabia Chaudhry was mediating her access to all these people. And that happens in, in a lawyer's life all the time. You know, you're doing a research and background investigation on your client, and you find grandma or aunt or somebody who knows him who can mediate access to a very different community from your own. And that's part of being a lawyer and a journalist. And, but you have to be aware that that access is being mediated. Uh, Rabia Chaudhry gave her only one box out of something like 14 or 15 boxes of records about the case. So Rabia gives Sarah Kanish one box that contains all the stuff that's favorable to Adnan. And then eventually Sarah Koenig asked for the other boxes, but Rabia was kind of reluctant because she hadn't gone through them. And it turns out there's a lot of very damaging information there. And then in interacting with Adnan, of course, Adnan's first and last and only priority is getting out of prison. And the only way he thinks he can do that is convincing people he's innocent. And so that that comes through in this very mani manipulative conversation in which he is he's conditioning his friendship and his availability as a source on her putting forward his preferred narrative. Right. And so she's gotten sort of into this dynamic. She tries to fight out of it. She does question it, of course, a little bit in the series. But I think you need to be more independent and you need to insist, even with somebody who's an underdog, you know, he's on, you know, in prison for life. You have to say, listen, I have the uh, the absolute priority is to tell a story that is accurate. Because that's what, you know, that's the only thing that brings us forward. And I am not going to promise you that this story is going to be favorable or flattering to you. So if you want that, if that is your only priority, then we stop now. Right. I mean, it's really so much of it reminds me of, you know, being a lawyer because that's, you know, that's that's what you tell a lot of clients is basically you know, I'm going to help you craft a strategy that is in line with what the judicial system and the legal system will allow. And I'm going to do my best. But, you know, if you're coming at me with crazy theories about aliens or twins, evil twins or something like that, you have to understand, don't bullshit me with that because that's not going to fly. We have to be narrowly focused on the priority, which is getting at the truth, putting forward your points as best you can. And also as your lawyer, and also as the journalist writing a story about you, I am definitely going to reveal unfavorable, unfattering, unflattering facts about you. I have to. It's part of my job. It's how I preserve my credibility to my, you know, before judges and before readers. And we call it you know, we called it in Texas, the come to Jesus conversation. And I don't really think one of those happened in Serial. 
I thought it was very interesting. Uh, Jay Wilds, who was uh, the friend of Syed in the story, who turned him in and uh, helped dispose with the body, according to his testimony, gave an interview after Serial came out. And he is doorstepped by Koenig and her producer at one point, and it's a very strange exchange. Uh, Wilds allows her into the house, and there is a characterization that Koenig or her producer, I'm not, I'm not sure which makes it, that he demonstrated animal rage as they were talking. Mm-hmm. And Wilds brings that up when he finally does grant an interview and said, you wonder why I don't want to participate with these people is even in a non-interview scenario, they characterize me who, I mean, on the trial, he's so calm. You listen to him. It seemed to be a major theme of people depicting his demeanor and personality. Um, but suddenly these two people who who meet him and he's inviting them in and everything there's no evidence of animal rage. It, it just seems to be inferred. Why exactly? I'm not, I'm not clear there's any evidence of what they're perceiving to justify that kind of assessment. It certainly serves their own purposes. Um, but I thought it was intriguing to have a character in this who doesn't participate, nonetheless is blanketed with an assessment that seems extremely charged and radioactive. Um, so when it it's the people who they're interviewing are beneficial to the story they're trying to tell, it's nothing but sympathy. It's it seemed to me. On the other side of the ledger, there's depictions like that that just seem grossly unfair from my point of view. So I just I just wonder if you could speak to to what what were inconvenient characters or facts and how they were dealt with in the telling of the story. Yeah, and and Jay Wilds is a prime example because the dynamics. This actually comes out a little bit in the HBO documentary from 2019, where they interviewed Daryl Massey, who was actually in The Wire, uh, a Baltimore homicide detective. And the thing is, what you know, what Jay, what Jay Wilds did was he snitched, and that is an an extremely serious problem for him and his family and everybody that he knows. Because it, you know, it doesn't matter what the context was, you know, it's not as if he gave up some higher up in, the, in a gang or something like that. The very act of cooperating with the police is something that you have to really, really keep secret in many communities, you know, not just inner city communities, but also in, you know, meth labs in Omaha, etc. You do not cooperate with the police. You do not testify against people. You do not give up secrets, period. And that is, and he did. And he's, you know, Sarah Koenig doesn't, perhaps doesn't really understand that by doing that, Jay Wilds risked his life. Yeah. And he also brought his family members into significant problems as well. And he scorched his reputation in his own community. You know, when he was interviewed in serial, it had been 15 years, you know, 14 years since he'd testified, he'd moved, he'd established a new life. He had a wife, he had kids. And suddenly these reporters are coming at him and they're saying, we'd like to do a, a news story, a, a podcast feature about how you snitched some guy off for murder who's now serving a life sentence. And so, you know, how would you like 4 p.m. as an interview date? Of course, he's not going to say, sure, no problem. He's going to say, get the hell out of my life. This chapter is over. 
I've tried to keep this shit secret for over a decade. What are you doing here now? And I think their response to that just was completely, they had no idea what sort of hornet's nest that they were kicking up for Jay Wilds. And that's, you know, and, and of course I read the interview intercept articles with Jay Wilds and, yeah. you know, I read them and I thought that this guy seems to be a decent guy. You're right. His trial testimony was amazingly calm, reflected and compelling. And he responded to five days of cross-examination and he was aside from his many story changes, which obviously exist and they yeah. are a problem and they do detract from his credibility. No question. But, you know, he was the kind of witness that prosecutors would dream of in terms of his demeanor and his articulateness and his, you know, the fact that he had really thought about his participation in this crime and laid it out to the jury in a fair way. And now, you know, he thinks this chapter of my life is over. I did the right thing, you know, finally after, you know, and why did he lie to the police all those times? Because everybody lies to the police. You know, every, every, everybody who's interviewed from a criminal milieu, from, a, you know, from, a, from a background in which many of their family members have gone to jail and in which they are involved in illegal activities and they get caught up in some investigation and they're dragged in by the cops and they don't really know what's going on or how much the cops know. They lie all the time. It's constant. Cops call it a rolling confession. And uh, and this is the rule, not the exception in all criminal investigations. Every criminal defense lawyer knows that. Every prosecutor knows it. Every detective knows it. They're always going to lie, deny, and minimize, you know, to keep their relatives out of trouble, to keep their criminal associates out of trouble, to try to preserve their own legal defenses. You know, I didn't pull the trigger. I was just there. And you just have to work with them. Sometimes you, sometimes corrupt cops work with them with open coercion and manipulation. And that leads to, you know, wrongful convictions. But even when there's no police misconduct, and I haven't seen any real evidence of that in this case so far, you know, you, you just have to keep working with them. You, you pull them in again and again and again. And you keep asking more and more refined questions. You confront them with inconsistencies. And so he he's not a genius mastermind liar framing Adnan. He's just, you know, a young black guy uh, who had, you know, probably a criminal record. I think he had a juvie record. And the police are coming at him for this really serious crime that he is involved with up to the neck. Yeah. And he just wants to keep his friends and family out of it. And, you know, and then these reporters come along and they want to dig up the story of him snitching in court for five days. And the, the reaction isn't animal rage. The reaction is just, what the hell are you people doing? You're going to destroy my life. Yeah, which which indeed, I mean, he became, I don't, I don't want to say paranoid, but he, he claimed that there was a lot of strange activity, that he'd been doxxed. That his his wife was was suffering a lot of mental stress and duress from it, um, and it was very interesting. I mean, when he is being cross examined at one point, he's being yelled at. Koenig even points it out, saying the optics of this a black a black guy on the stand being yelled at during the trial from a white woman. Um, I think he he 
appeals to the judge so calmly, almost demurely, to say, could you please tell her to stop yelling? Like, I can hear her. There's no need for this. Um, (laughs) It's an interesting moment. Um, So I wondered if you could offer me three answers, uh, take as long as you want, about your best interpretation of the facts surrounding the case that might suggest that Adnan Syed was innocent, the worst interpretation of them uh, demonstrating his guilt, and what you personally think most likely happened on on the day of of this um, murder of Heyman Lee. Sure. So I guess first, case for innocence, case for guilt, and then what I think happened. Yeah. So I think the that that I would make the case for innocence for Adnan Syed the way that basically the way that Christina Gutierrez made it. Um, because the thing is you you don't really have a strong positive case for innocence in the sense of a really compelling alternate suspect. Right. So what you're gonna do is you are going to pick apart all of the elements of the state's case that don't hang together well that contain contradictions. And you're also going to point at other suspicious figures whose stories have not really been cleared up. And so um, she did a relatively good, she, she, you know, her courtroom demeanor was kind of screamy and a little bit over the top and a little bit alienating. But, you know, if you look at her defense re- records and uh, what how she prepared it, that's how I would go about it. So first of all, you say, nobody saw Heyman Lee being killed and nobody saw her being buried except for this deeply problematic witness who was involved in it up to the hilt and has lied to detectives over and over. We can't trust Jay. I mean, Jay has changed his stories about really important facts, like where he saw Adnan show her the body. And so you have to take Jay's testimony with a huge grain of salt. Also, Adnan was... You know, he was in love with her. He respected her. Nobody ever saw any hints of domestic violence or anger. He never sort of attacked her or hit her or even threatened her in any way that any of the students saw. And then we come to, you know, that time when she was allegedly abducted. We don't have any direct eyewitnesses of exactly when and how or even where she was abducted. We just have to guess about that. And Adnan himself has remained absolutely 100% consistent from the very first that he never did anything to Heyman Lee. He has never confessed. He has never given some sort of incriminating statement. Yeah, maybe he gave a couple of different statements to the cops about picking her up after school on the 13th. But these are just, you know, memory failures or normal inconsistencies. You know, not, who among us can say the exact same story about something that happened, you know, a couple weeks ago? And, you know, that's, so you build in the reasonable doubt. And then you look, of course, at the autopsy findings. There were these strange patterns of lividity that perhaps indicate she was, you know, in a car in a different position. Jay Wilde says they went all sorts of different places with her body in the background. None of Adnan's classmates thinks he's capable of murder. They've, they all testified that he was a gentle, likable person. And then you have to address the elephant in the room, which is why is Adnan not testifying? So, you know, the, of course, as 
you know, the lawyerly response is he has a right not to testify and you cannot hold them against that, hold that against him, which is what the jury was actually told. But you, as a defense lawyer, you have to at least edge up to that and you have to say, it's not, you know, this trial is not about Adnan telling a story that totally convinces you. This is about whether the state is satisfied as burden of proof. And then let's look at Don Kleindienst. So Don, you know, he had been dating her. And after she disappears, Don suddenly goes home and sleeps for like six or eight hours. He can only be contacted by the detectives at 1.30 a.m. on the 14th, eight hours after Hayes disappeared. What was he doing? Nobody's ever nailed that down. And then let's look at Alonzo Sellers, a man who has a record of exhibitionist sex crimes and he just suddenly you know comes across her body uh after walking you know 100 yards into a thick dense forest just to take a leak that doesn't fly and so you build up more and more instances of reasonable doubt you just try to crumble the foundations of the state's case and that's you know unless you have a strong alternate suspect or a defendant who can give a plausible narrative of innocence that's what you are reliant on and so and she did a pretty good case in most of those points you know it's criminal defense lawyers talk about it all the time these are some cases you have to try on the principle of reasonable doubt and then on the guilt side i mean the well, if I may just interrupt yeah. one second, because sure. um, one thing, though, when you mentioned that he, he demonstrated no domestic violence or anything like that, um, true, but there was the handwriting where he said, I'm going to kill in direct reference to her. Not, not that that is an incident of violence, but it's certainly a, a stark reminder of, of maybe how, how the breakup and her dating somebody she was in love with and putting on AOL as an update how madly in love she is with this guy, that he's not taking to it well in that instance. Exactly. And that's that's also something that you'll you'll need to sort of confront and defuse as the defense lawyer. And the way you do that is, first of all, ask the jury, how many instances have you told somebody that you love, even your children, I'm going to kill you? You've made me so angry. I'm just going to, I brought you into this world and I'm going to take you out. Sure. And also the, the testimony from the friends at Woodlawn High School was that, of course, he was a bit jealous and possessive and controlling and she didn't like that, but there were no instances of violence. He genuinely loved her, which I don't think anybody disputes. And it was also like his first puppy love experience yeah. where your emotions run away with you. And you may sort of get into a position where you say or think extreme things. Oh my God, she was the love of my life. And so, yeah, the there are there there's some evidence of jealous, controlling behavior, and even this scrawled threat on a note. But are you gonna convict somebody of murder based on that when these are feelings that we've all had? And so that is how you know the defense lawyer will try to diffuse that. But still, you know, the the evidence is there. And the other thing is that if you look historically at intimate partner violence or domestic violence, you know, most of the people who are convicted of it, most of them are men, of course, they didn't have any prior record of violent crimes. 
And in fact, many of them didn't even have any prior record of violence or anger or fights with their partners. So this, you know, that the prosecutor will say this stuff can come out of nowhere and it does all the time. But, uh, you know, that was so the defense lawyer would have to look at those things. But you always have arguments and you always have to just piece the arguments into the puzzle. Sure. No, it, it it's just an interesting I thought the way she went about presenting that and discussing her own potential naivete was I, I I just found it just really did rub me the wrong way. I, I I really enjoyed the first episode, and it seemed like there was a real attempt to be objective with it. But very quickly, um, even when she's doorstepping Jay Wilds, I found like she was giddy. She was laughing the yeah, entire time. Yeah. And as you say, the implications of what she's about to do are going to be immensely damaging to this person and his family. And there was no consideration of that. It's just moving the entertainment of the story along. Um, so sorry to interject, but so in terms of the the worst interpretation that would supply the guilt of the of the protagonist here, how do you see that if you were approaching it as a prosecutor? Yeah, that's uh, this. I would say is a it's a circumstantial case because there's no direct evidence. Nobody actually saw any of the actions leading up to the crime. But as we're taught in law school from the very beginning, circumstantial evidence is exactly as powerful as direct evidence and can even be more powerful. Mm. And I guess one thing I forgot to mention during the defense case is yeah. the state's timeline. So the state put forward this timeline in their arguments. It was way too short and almost certainly is incorrect. Now, I mean, the state's case, it's a very strong circumstantial case. We don't have an eyewitness or any direct forensic evidence of his participation. Uh, but that's true of thousands of cases in the United States and everywhere else. Every legal system says a good circumstantial case is just as strong as any other case. So what you've got here is you've got the threat, which is a threat. I'm going to kill. That's not something casual. And especially that he wrote it down and he kept that piece of paper along with her letter in his own room when it was discovered by the police. Right. So this is not just something that he casually thought up in a minute. He actually wrote it down and kept it with him. And you've got the controlling possessive aspect. This, These are traits that often precede domestic violence homicides. And you've got the fact that he had fresh passport photos for his expired Pakistani passport in his car when it was searched which is kind of odd because his family didn't go to Pakistan very much. You've got his many inconsistent stories telling the police on the day of Hayes' disappearance. Oh, actually, I did ask for, for a ride after school. No, I didn't ask her for a ride after school. He went back and forth. And ascribing that to a mere, you know, just vague memory, as Sarah Koenig did, that just doesn't cut it. Because this day was obviously a really important day in his life he'd just gotten his first cell phone <laughs> for a number of like yeah and he'd he'd uh, he'd loaned his car to this dope dealing friend of his for the very first time ever right he loaned his own cell phone to this dope dealing friend of his not just a dope dealing friend you know a friend of his who happened to also provide him with dope it was the birthday of one of his closest friends who he bought a present for uh, the police called him on the very day of Hayes' disappearance and said, your girlfriend is missing and we'd like to talk to you and we need to know what happened 
earlier today when she went missing. It's disingenuous to say that this was just any other day. I mean, Sarah Koenig buys that, and that's just crazy. You know, Adnan Syed had dozens of reasons to remember this day with crystal clear pre- precision, which he certainly does. You, this be- day. you now, believe he has real clarity about the events of this timeline? Oh, yeah. I mean, how many times do you get phoned by a policeman who says, your ex-girlfriend has just disappeared. She's one of the most reliable people you've ever known. She was supposed to pick up her, you know, vulnerable young cousins at, you know, after school to bring them home. She's gone and nobody knows how to find her. She's not answering her phone or her pager or anything like that. Her family are distraught. They've already called the police and phoned it in as a potential kidnapping or suspicious event. And we are already investigating it right now. As a, and you're just supposed to say, oh, well, you know, whatever. Just an, I guess that's Wednesday. Now, of course he knew. And of course he understood that this was extremely significant. And the other thing is, is you know, so, so, so basically that is, and he, and he also, displayed bizarre behavior after he got this call when he was at Krista Myers' apartment. And according to Jay Wilds and Krista Myers, he was, you know, stoned because maybe they'd been smoking some dope. And he said, oh, my God, they're going to call me. What do I do? What do I say to them? And what that really shows you is that Adnan Syed believed that, that he was going to drive around in Hay's car for a couple of days before he found the right way to dispose of her body. But then what happens is suddenly the police, just four hours after she disappears, are suddenly beginning to investigate. And they call him up on his own private cell phone number that he just gave Hay Min Lee the day before. And so what he does, as you know, as Jay says in his testimony, and as Krista Myers confirms, observing his behavior, he freaks out. The reason the police were so concerned about this case is because there had been a previous rape and murder in Baltimore County of a woman named Jada Gilbert, I believe, or Jada Lambert, uh, an 18-year-old girl who's brutally raped and murdered and left by the side of a ditch just four months earlier. So the Baltimore County cops thought, we might have a serial killer on our hands here. And so they began invest ordinarily, you know, Heyman Lee's 18. She's an adult. And even 18 year olds run away from school all the time or run away from their homes. And so the police ordinarily will wait 48 or 72 hours. But they were, according to the undisclosed podcast, the police were under orders to take every disappearance of a young female very seriously and investigate it as a potential foul play from the very beginning because of this horrible rape and murder, which had occurred only four months before, very close in space to Woodlawn High School. And so that is the backstory of why the cops took this so seriously so quickly. And that stunned and startled Adnan Syed. He didn't know how to react to it. So as Jay says, he said, we have to bury this and get rid of it as soon as possible. And then afterward, you know, the cops continuously call up Adnan and they asked him what happened that afternoon. And he gives three or even four different stories. 
and he has no explanation. He has no alibi. He cannot tell anybody what he did on the afternoon of the 13th. And then Jin Pusateri comes along to the police. So the police find, you know, they get Adnan's cell phone records because they're a little bit suspicious. They contact Jin Pusateri, who is a friend of Jay, not of Adnan, of Jay. And Jin says, well, Jay had Adnan's phone on the 13th when Heyman Lee disappeared. And then the police, you know, and she has no reason to lie. She says this to the police with her lawyer and her mother present. The police don't even know who she is at this point. They just know she's a number that appeared on Adnan Syed's own cell phone. And then they go talk to Jin Pusateri. Jin Pusateri says, yeah, Jay called me that day on Adnan's cell phone and said, I just helped bury Heyman Lee with Adnan. And then the cops go talk to Jay. Jay leads them to uh, to Heyman Lee's car. There is no way to explain how Jay Wilds knew where Heyman Lee's car had been parked, except for him being involved in depositing it there. And so it's, you know, this is the, the noose of circumstance tightening around the throat of the case. How did Jay know where Heyman Lee's car was? How did Jin Pusateri know that Jay Wilds had Adnan's cell phone? And so it all just comes together and it proves by circumstance, but all these circumstances coming together, that there's an overwhelming case for Adnan's guilt. And when it came to the trial, his only chance, Adnan, his only chance was to come up with another story that was more compelling, more fact-based and more convincing than what the prosecution had just put forward, and he elected to remain silent. Oh, that's that was his right, of course, right. and the jury was instructed not to consider that as proof of guilt. But it is very suspicious, and the jury, all juries, think about it. So that's the you know that's the case against against Adnan. Well, and let me just ask you. I mean, am I right to assume? I mean, Koenig seemed to put this forward. If if it wasn't Adnan who killed her, does it have to be, apart from some random serial killer who's passing through that we've never connected it through any means, um, the most likely culprits are the current boyfriend who has no motive. They've only been dating, I think, for 10 days or something like that. Mm -hmm. Seems to be going perfectly well. He has no history that's concerning really whatsoever. Him, Don... Jay Wilds, or the person who discovered the body, who had some weird criminal history with exposing himself publicly, I believe, mm -hmm. yeah. to men like or, or or to boys or something. Um, other than those, is there is there really any useful um, person of interest who might be suspected of having committed this crime? Yeah, there really isn't. And yeah. so the thing is, of course, this case has gotten so much attention that Redditors and bloggers and podcasts have put forward a bunch of different possible explanations. Um, and so you, you've got Jay. Uh, and so why would Jay murder this person that he didn't really know very well? Right. Um, there's There's simply no reason for Jay to have done that, except for the fact the only possible motive Jay might have had is that Heyman Lee allegedly knew that 
Jay was cheating on his girlfriend, Stephanie, and might have told people that Jay was in fact cheating on her. That is the only motive anyone can come up with for Jay. And it's just obviously flimsy. And for, for that matter, there's actually no proof that Heyman Lee knew this, that it was important in any way, or that it would have been a strong enough motive for Jay to kill her. Don has obviously no motive. He was just, he began dating her. They were intimate, which really was a strong, I think that's, that was a pretty strong factor for Adnan to kill her because, you know, the Heyman Lee and Don Kleindienst had been working together. They liked each other, two good looking young people with raging hormones. And Adnan found out in early January of 1999 that they had slept together. And I think that's a triggering, triggering factor. Alonzo Sellers is a very weird guy. He exposed himself to adult females. He even like disrobed in front of a cop and then ran away when she tried to arrest him. So he's, you know, he's a crazy weird exhibitionist weirdo, but there was never any evidence linking him to this crime whatsoever. And the reason he went so far into Leakin Park to supposedly urinate, yeah, that's probably, you know, that's pretty suspicious. But the reason he did it is he liked to go into nature, take off his clothes, and run around. Right. He's had several, you know, arrests for that. None of this adds up to any kind of means, motive, opportunity, case for any of them to have killed Heyman Lee, to have strangled an 18-year-old woman to death with their bare hands, a very personal, intimate, direct crime, and then to have buried them in a shallow grave in a park. The only person who had anywhere near that kind of motive was the enraged, jealous ex-boyfriend who had just found out that his previous girlfriend, pardon my French, had begun fucking some other guy. You know, yeah. and I and I found that Koenig's interpretation. She was very dismissive of the idea of first love. Oh, it's so common, it's so trite, and all of that. I mean, in my experience, and and I think it's more or less an accepted cliche. But I mean, this is the one that's going to hurt the most in life: is losing that first person you fall in love with, maybe the first person you slept with. I was devastated. My first kiss was the first one I slept with. And I think it took about two years to really get over it. But it, but it hurt in a way that no other breakup has ever hurt me. And I think it's precisely because it's that first one. Um, th- there's no way to prepare for any of those feelings the first time they, they, they happen to you. And, and additionally, I thought that Adnan was particularly sensitive about the theft. It wasn't even an accusation. He was caught mm-hmm. doing it and he admitted it. Um, I thought his defensiveness was really intriguing about that point because it suggests this duplicity that he has no concern for potentially large numbers of poor people donating money for for the welfare of, of the broader community. No concern for them. It's just that he can go out shopping or, or buying weed. He's pretty happy to adopt an a la carte approach to his own faith in terms of premarital sex, and he kind of laughs about his mother's approach to taking it seriously, that 
you get married or or you abstain, um, and the drug use seems rampant. So it, it just seemed to suggest somebody who is a very compartmentalized person in many respects. And in relation to his response to to Hay to what she was entering into her diary, I don't know what happened, but it doesn't seem like a leap to say that he wasn't handling it well. Even though a number of people said, well, he he had never domestically assaulted her or anything, but it didn't sound like he'd ever, like, I think he didn't go to school for a few days after mm-hmm. yeah. Christmas holidays. Um, I thought that, I think there was a discussion towards the end of the series of Serial where they talked about premeditation and different ways to interpret what premeditation is that I thought was interesting. That it's not just from point A to to when you commit the murder, it's this sustained climbing tension, but that it can be intermittent. And, mm-hmm. and I don't see what's unreasonable about that. I mean, Anthony Bourdain was referencing suicide his entire adult life. Yeah. I think it was a building tension to do it, but given the right partner who's humiliated him, it's gone public and suddenly he's alone and it, everything comes to a tipping point. And I think even his brother said, if he hadn't killed himself and somebody else was in the room, he might well have murdered that person given the rage he was feeling, but he had no history of domestic assault and he was 61. Yes. Yeah. So I just found I found a lot of the reasoning and logic of where Koenig was going about her her protagonist's inability to to do something like this kind of ridiculous in the way that she presented it. And I mean, there's there's always the cliche that we all know. Whenever some serial killer is arrested, the neighbors and sometimes even the friends say, "I had no idea. He seemed like such a." And, you know, it is a cliche, but the reason these cliches exist is that they are often true in real life. Right. And that is also, you know, his friend, Juwan Gordon, in these notes of, of the in the prosecution file, Juwan Gordon says that when Adnan Syed read this letter from Hay breaking up with him, his eyes were his eyes got red and his face flushed with, you know, primal anger. That doesn't mean, you know, Adnan's an intelligent guy. It doesn't mean he just runs off and beats her up. But it means that the anger begins boiling and festering inside. And I can easily see that happening as the anger just keeps festering. You keep, you know, you're 17 years old. Your hormones are raging. It's your first love. You're not capable of thinking rationally about this. And you just keep going back to this idea of who is she with? And what is she doing? And is she smiling? Is she laughing? Is she touching him on the hand? Is, you know, it's Dawn. I know it's got to be Dawn, et cetera. Who he's met. Who he's met and interacted. Yeah, exactly. Who he's met. And of course, he was very, you know, he was, he was very cordial in those meetings. Yeah. But it's because that he's an intelligent person. And he understands that, you know, that, that he has to keep up social appearances, which he did very well. I mean, his parents... You know, um, seemed to have thought he was a really good Muslim for quite a while up until the trial. And so he's leading a bit of a double life. There's a bit of a compartmentalization there. Um, but this is psychologically, it's very, very plausible. This is how crimes like this happen. It's not like in Hollywood movies. They're, the characters' motivations go up and down. Occasionally they think, I'm going to kill this bitch. 
occasionally they think, what am I thinking? That's crazy. You know, I'm a decent person. And so I don't think Sarah Koenig was, you know, really alive to the complexities of it. And also, frankly, in a certain sense, to, you know, to the male psyche, especially the juvenile, aggressive, hormone adult male psyche. Because, you know, I had first loves and, you know, we all did. And there's a reason that men commit the vast majority of domestic violence homicides. It's because it's especially in these connections, we can become vulnerable to extremely powerful emotional forces. And we have the strength to actually enact them in the real world. And it, that can happen even with people who have never before shown any violent tendencies. Adnan was only 17 years old. He didn't have time to show any violent tendencies. And here's the other thing. He hasn't shown any violent tendencies since. No. I think right now he could be released, and I don't think anything else would happen. Because one of the most interesting findings of criminology is that the criminals who are least likely to repeat their crimes are people who kill intimate partners in a relationship. Or crimes that are that are motivated by an intense emotional relationship. Because what happens is it's a perfect storm of factors that come together. Youth, hormones, impulsivity, and jealousy and rage. And it leads to a horrible crime that obviously, you know, creates destruction and devastation. But unless these, these factors come together again that particular person is not going to be very dangerous. If you take all the people who committed murder, like let's say you take like 90% of people who commit murder are males. If you take all of them and look at their lives after, their age, after the age of 45, they are no more dangerous to society than any other male human being. The kinds of crimes that do recur constantly are people who have a criminal lifestyle, like right. gangsters or people who live from breaking into homes or sex criminals who are driven by sexual urges. Those are the highest rate of recidivism, about 80%. But most people who you know strangle, stab, or shoot their wives or partners when they're 22 or 23, once they get out of prison 20 or 30 years later they have the exact same profile as anyone else because they were just people who had to be triggered by a certain set of events. And if those events don't come, you know, don't, don't uh, appear again, they are actually pretty safe to be released, which is why I would say that I don't want to see Adnan go back to prison. Frankly, I think 23 years is an appropriate punishment for a 17 year old, even for this grave crime. And, uh, you know, he should live for the rest of his life with the mark of Cain on his forehead because he is a murderer. Um, but, you know, maybe he should do another 10 or 15 years. But I don't, I don't agree with extremely long American sentences. You know, in Europe, he would have gotten maybe 15 or 20 years. He's been punished. He's gotten the prime of his life torn away from him. He will never be able to rejoin society as an equal member. But, you know, if he is eventually released after all of these court cases, I'm not going to be there demonstrating with a sign saying put him back in prison 
because I think his crime was probably mostly contextual. He certainly did it, but he's not the kind of person who I think represents a lasting danger to other people. Yeah, it's also interesting. I think Radiolab did a podcast back in 2012 called Murder on the Mind, where they had um, some experts uh, basically come up with the statistic that 91% of men polled and 84% of women have fantasized about killing someone. And I think think the vast majority were partners uh, or or spouses in that case. Um, So I guess I guess I want to just come back. I mean, we we did leave aside the Nisha phone call at 332, uh, which is, I think, explained by a butt dial by Adnan. Um, But what do you think actually happened on this day? Can you take me through your timeline of what makes the most sense to you? Sure. So first of all, the state's timeline, as they said, that um, that uh, Heyman Lee was killed by like 2.36 p.m., that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I understand why they chose it, but it's not right. And I think that they probably would admit that. But the thing is, that timeline was only part of their closing argument. It's not proof. It's not evidence. It's just a lawyer's argument. The jury could have concluded another timeline, and they probably did. Um, so what I think probably happened was that he intercepted her as she was leaving school, you know, as about 2.15 p.m. He came up to her car and he said, hey, you know, I asked you for a ride earlier. I really need a ride. My car's in the shop or it's with my brother. And I think my this is speculation. I'm not going to say this is anything more than speculation. And he said, listen, baby, I mean, you know. I I still think about you all the time. We just gave each other really nice Christmas gifts. And I think we had something really special. I think he may have even had a flower in his hand, you know, because there was floral paper discovered in her, in her car. And he just said, let's just drive for a little while, you know, to where we always used to go to make out. And, you know, where I used to go to smoke weed behind the Best Buy. Because I just want to talk to you. I just, you know, you've been freezing me out the last couple of days. And I just want to see if there's any chance this can go, you know, that we can get our thing back together. And in fact, I, I'm even willing to, to say that he may have been really sincere in that. He may have arranged all of this not to kill her, but simply to get an opportunity to talk to her privately, face to face with nobody else around. And then they drive to the Best Buy parking lot, either he or she drives there. And then, you know, they have a conversation. And he, you know, says, I know you've been cheating on me with this guy, Don, and you're disrespecting me. And I think that's horrible. And this is not how I wanted it to end. I think we still have potential, et cetera. And then maybe, you know, she got sort of angry and defensive, said, I have the right to be with whoever I want. You know, I already broke up with you 21 days ago, and it's final. We're not getting back together like before. And then maybe she makes some sort of comment. You know, there's always this period in in movie. Actually, it's it sometimes happens in movies, but it almost always happens when defendants tell you why they killed their wives. Or their partners right because the defendant says then the bitch said well yeah i fucked don and he was much better than you 
That's what the defendants say in hindsight to justify their attack. And so that's probably, you know, if Adnan were going to try to be honest, he would probably add that, which is dishonest. But they always try to add that to say, that's the stinger. That's what made me flip out. And, you know, maybe it did. She had every right to say whatever she wanted to him without being strangled, obviously. And uh, then he flips out. He strangles her. And she beats back and she fights back. She breaks off the turn signal indicator on the steering wheel when she's kicking and fighting, and which is why they found it broken when they found her car. And then he realizes, holy shit, man, this has gotten really a lot more serious. And then he makes the plan with Jay, et cetera, et cetera. The Nisha call is crucial because the Nisha call happened at 2.32 p.m. So all of this happened. It didn't happen immediately. So what happened was, you know, he drove to Best Buy or even somewhere else. We don't know it's Best Buy. It may not have even been Best Buy. He drives anywhere with her and they have a conversation which could have lasted, you know, an hour or two hours or, you know, any, any number of it's, you know, or they could have driven around. They could have gotten something to eat or maybe she went and picked up a friend of hers at the gym, which some people have testified to, and he only met her later. But I think he got in touch with her. They went there. Something happened. And at some point, he strangled her. He brought her body to the back of her own car, put that body into the trunk. Maybe he drove around for a little while thinking, oh, shit, what have I done? And then he calls up Nisha because he's thinking, well, you know, Jay has my cell phone. and." And basically, he meets up with Jay, obviously. He says, Jay has had my cell phone from now on, and Jay is now going to be my alibi. Whether it was a murder plot or just a plot to get her alone, Jay's my alibi. So then he calls Nisha. He puts Jay on the line at, I think it's 3.32 p.m. It's been a while since I, I wrote the... Uh, but the thing is, the Nisha calls is corroborated by multiple sources, including... Adnan's own brother, Tanvir Syed, who said Adnan called Nisha at 2.32 or, you know, at, at, on the afternoon of the 13th. Yeah. And also by Nisha herself, who says he called me. So that proves that Adnan was with Jay and calling Nisha in Silver Springs, Maryland on her own private landline on the afternoon. At a point in time when Adnan claimed that he was either in the library or at track practice, etc. So he claimed he was nowhere near, actually he claimed he was, uh, you know, away from Woodlawn High School. But the Nisha call is consistent with the Best Buy parking lot, could have been elsewhere, but it's consistent in that cell phone slice tower and it shows that Adnan was with Jay at that particular time which totally conflicts with every version that Adnan has put forward and shows that he was with Jay and also Adnan put Jay on the line even though Jay had no idea who Nisha was Nisha Tana Jay didn't know her from Adam and so why would Adnan calling up Nisha his supposedly new girlfriend why would he give the phone to Jay, who didn't know her, didn't like her, didn't even understand who Adnan was calling? 
Adnan did that because at that point, late in the afternoon, he realized, I need Jay to be my alibi. And so I'm going to make sure Nisha remembers that Jay was with me because Jay is going to tell the police that I, Jay Wilds, I was with Adnan the entire afternoon and he didn't kill anybody. That was Adnan's plan. And that plan held until Jay talked to the police. And then Jay talked to the police and said, yeah, I was there with Adnan when he called up Nisha, this woman that I now know the name of. And he called me up just to try to make sure we had some kind of alibi because Adnan said I was going to be his alibi. When Jay came forward, talked to the police, he destroyed that alibi, which is now why Adnan desperately needs to convince people that the Nisha call never happened. But it did. And we have even his own brother's testimony to prove it did and the cell phone records to prove conclusively that it did. It shatters Adnan's alibi and convincingly shows that he was trying to scheme to put together a fake alibi. Right. Yeah. It, I found, frankly, I, I wondered about your take. I watched the HBO documentary over the last few days. I, I found it even more biased than Serial, much mm -hmm. more so, and disturbingly so. Like, I mean, I was embarrassed to to watch it in terms of if I had sort of presided over telling that story, what, I don't know, just the, just the overall approach. Like, I find with, with the sort of explicit agenda of advocacy, and, and I mean, I think you mentioned in your article um, the... Sorry, just uh, Chaudhry. Chaudhry was assigned herself the title of sort of producer in some capacity, mm -hmm. even though it's not on IMDb. Um, it it felt like I mean I've been working on something true crime related, uh, kidnapping from thirty years ago. I'm just astounded by how much participation, enthusiastic participation, there are in serial in this documentary yeah. versus yeah. what it's like when you try to delve into something and you don't have a gatekeeper sign off on it. Most people related to crime want nothing to do with revisiting it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and all of these people are just so joyful to be on camera most of the time. Um, yeah, so I just wondered what you made of the documentary in terms of supplementary material revisiting this story. Yeah, the documentary, I will say, I mean, of course, before I published the piece in Quillette, I sent Amy Berg, Amy J. Berg, there's a lot of Amy Bergs, Amy J. Berg, a, a catalog of 30 questions that I wanted comment on her from her for. Uh, she never responded. I okay. called out many different times in many different forums on, you know, Twitter and Instagram. Hello, Ms. Berg, you're a famous producer. I'm about to publish. Never one response, just complete blank. Okay. And the documentary I thought was, was hopelessly biased. That wasn't a documentary. It was an advocacy piece. Yeah. It was something that could have been directed and written by Adnan's defense lawyers. The Once again, the role of Rabia Chaudhry as gatekeeper was deeply problematic. And of course, the documentary didn't even try to come to grips with the fact that Rabia was a biased source. They simply presented her as a paragon of truth and authenticity. And, you know, Rabia Chaudhry is, in many respects, a very sympathetic figure. You know, she's somebody who's, uh, you know, an immigrant 
and has come to the U.S. and has gotten a law degree and raised a family, a law-abiding citizen. She's extremely articulate, very energetic. So, you know, she has many admirable personality characteristics, but she's absolutely not an objective source. And the documentary also engaged in a lot of basically skullduggery to put forward its points. You saw these very heavily edited interviews with characters that didn't give you any hint of their background, their orientation, their biases, or their approach to the case. And, you know, I accused Amy J. Berg of presenting a falsified college transcript to Krista Myers in the key scene in episode four of the documentary, the the college transcript they present to her refers to her as like Krista Myers, not her full name, and doesn't look like a college transcript. It was put together by an intern. Mm. It wasn't an original authentic document from the college she attended. And I said, Ms. Berg, commentators on the internet and you know, even Reddit, because Reddit has some very sharp commentators. They've said that what you presented to her when you were trying to convince her that Adnan didn't come to your apartment on the 13th, but some other day, this was fake. And I'm going to say in my article that it's fake. It is not an authentic college transcript. It was cobbled together by some intern. We have no idea whether it's authentic. The response was silence. Hmm. She wouldn't even defend herself against that accusation which I believe, and I believe that she did present, you know, it's a doctored, fake university transcript, not the original. And Krista Myers, she was obviously blindsided by this entire line of questioning. They took her to some, you know, restaurant, and she was sitting in a booth, and they presented her with this document saying, you must have been at some seminar on the 13th of January, 1999. 20 years ago and she's obviously like oh i don't know maybe i don't know how can i tell it's you know what is this you've shown me it's just ma- grossly manipulative mm. and the other thing that i found deeply problematic and actually dishonest and vicious was how they treated don kleindienst don kleindienst had nothing to do with Heyman's lee Heyman lee's death Here's a man who, even according to the documentary itself, is gravely ill. He's moved to a different city. He's raising a family. He's probably never thought about this in the past 20 years. And then suddenly a bunch of producers for some documentary doorstep him and say, tell us whether you killed Heyman Lee. What were you doing on the night of January 13th, 1999? And he says, just leave me alone, please. I'm just trying to raise my family and make enough money so that they can survive after I die of the chronic illness that I have. Just please leave me alone. Why would you put that scene in a documentary? Why would you violate his dignity and privacy that way? Not to mention the fact that, of course, the first shot you see of the small town Don Kleindienst is in is a Confederate flag. Mm. <laughs> it's just how obvious can you get with your attempts to besmirch Don Kleindienst? So, I mean, that documentary I thought was, and of course you have also have the fact that 
they hired people to try to prove that Heyman Lee's car had somehow been moved or hadn't been there when it was discovered. And the, the experts that the documentary hired to prove this were so concerned about their own reputations that they wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal saying, listen, we did not say that Heyman Lee's car had been moved. We could not come to any conclusion about what happened there. So if you see this documentary and you think that there is something suspicious about how the police found Heyman Lee's car, it wasn't us. We didn't do it. Why did they do it? They, you know, they did that to preserve their own reputations against a grossly, deeply flawed and biased documentary. I found that to be one of the most profoundly irresponsible works of alleged journalism I've ever encountered. Yeah. I guess my last question for you is, I'm just curious what you make of the ascendancy of true crime in the culture. Because I've been kind of grappling, at the beginning of the pandemic, I went back and, and watched Twin Peaks, which I'd never seen when it originally came out. And I, I was so taken with it um, that I watched, a, I think, a four and a half hour analysis of it. One of the first things they say was, it's David Lynch's meta-analysis of television and the descent of television about how it inflames our sense of mundane crime. We don't care about victims. We just cherish the the killer or the person who catches the killer. In the last five minutes, we resolve the case. Um, this was not a story about who killed Laura Palmer. It was a case about who was Laura Palmer. And through that lens, we explore the impact of her death through grief. And we have this back and forth between the, the community learning more about them, and in learning more about them, we learn more about her. In other words, the exact opposite of how most true crime kind of delves in, where the, the victims are just commodified and transactional, mm-hmm. and then we just need a new victim to tell a new crime story sort of thing. So I, I, I just thought it never occurred to me that such a revolutionary approach to, to analyzing true crime um, but its ascendancy now is getting a lot of pushback. Yeah. Finally. It's also particularly interesting, I was curious what you make about it, that somewhere between, in my research, 70 to 80% of the audience that's consuming it is female. Even though the majority of victims murdered in America are male, over overwhelmingly, um, they like white female uh, victims seem to be the most attractive. I think Columbia Journalism School offers how media important are you if you were murdered and you have to enter in your details, your age, your <laughs> your sex and stuff. It's quite interesting. But but I'm sorry to go far afield on this. But yeah. I'm just curious, what do you make of true crime and why are people so attracted to it? And is it problematic or is there a, a, a utility in it um, that is not being... Uh, like that approach is not being done instead this sort of salacious entertainment uh exploitative approach which now seems to be getting all this pushback yeah that's i mean first of all the point you make about twin peaks is really interesting i hadn't even thought about it that way before because everyone's i mean obviously i'm a huge david lynch fan and a twin peaks fan and everyone looks at it thinking of it in the sort of like Luis Buñuel tradition of surrealism and and the uncanny, et cetera, which it also does very well. Sure. But you're right. There's, you know, Laura Palmer sort of haunts the narrative in a way that is actually, when you think about it, I'm thinking about it right now, is actually kind of interesting and moving. 
And when it comes to true crime, sorry to interrupt, but like even the policeman who first encounters her body breaks down crying. He's so affected by it. So it's a totally different approach from how, you know, uh, Humphrey Bogart just, oh, here's another murder sort of thing. It's personal. Yeah. And and there's that aspect of David Lynch that, uh, you know, his humanity and his understanding of, of relationships that is often underplayed. I mean, when it comes to true crime, I think the first thing we have to understand about true crime is the major push in true crime. Of course, there are historical true crime writing, you know, historical true crime writing like The Executioner's Song, The, Strangers Beside, the Stranger Beside Me, and um, uh, the book about Jeffrey McDonald. I can't really remember that. But, you know, these journalists. Yeah, the 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 one by the the New York the New Yorker journalist oh, Judith Masson wrote the the classic essay about true crime, saying that every journalist is engaged in unethical behavior, and it was about uh, it was about the book about Jeffrey McDonald, the army surgeon who killed his family, but that was like the first era of true crime in which people were just sort of experimenting. I think the modern era of true crime began in. Fatal vision. Fatal vision, exactly. Yeah, I read all those books when they came out. I'm sure. that old, and so I've been a true crime fan from way back. One could say, and obviously documentaries like The Thin Blue Line, yeah. whose director you've in you've interviewed. That's right. But I think the modern renaissance of true crime came about in the mid and late 1990s, when DNA evidence began showing that there were more wrongful convictions than many people had imagined possible with the American criminal justice system. And so they weren't, you know, a huge majority of convictions weren't wrongful, but there was a significant minority, hundreds of people, now thousands of people have been freed from prison based on DNA testing, which if it's done correctly, really does deliver the results. And I think that's one reason why true crime has become a bit more popular is because people have become aware of the very real faults and flaws with the American criminal justice system. And I would, you know, I basically, I sort of defend the American criminal justice system in general. I think we usually get the right people, but as for, you know, whether we attach the right sentences or conduct fair trials, there's a lot of debate. And then it really began accelerating in the 2000s as more and more of these unjust convictions began being exposed and it became sort of like a trendy uh sort of a trendy beat for journalists and there are always lawyers available you know i was a defense lawyer and we'll always be willing to tell you that our clients were unjustly convicted and that there's an alternate suspect and that the state's evidence was weak and so then a lot of lay people began and lay journalists and lay people. I'm, you know, I've written a book about the Yin Zuring case, and a New Yorker writer, Nathan Heller, wrote three articles about the Yin Zuring case. And they're pretty good, um, but they they don't really, you know, he's not a lawyer and he doesn't really analyze the evidence that well. And so then, what you, I mean, I hate to, I hate to sound like I'm a lawyer. You must trust me. You must respect me. But as a lawyer, when you read faulty, sloppy true crime journalism, of which there is unfortunately a lot, 
you begin to see cognitive errors and biases um, that affect the way people look at the evidence. And so true crime has remedied many unjust convictions. And journalists have done absolute yeoman labor in really correcting unjust convictions. But especially with this huge boom in true crime, there's a lot of dreck that comes out. And a lot of people who don't really understand what they're doing, they don't understand how the legal system works, they don't know how to read court trial transcripts or uh, or appellate opinions. And, you know, it's like they're, you know, it's like they're evaluating how a surgeon operated on somebody in an open heart surgery by just looking at a tape of it and then maybe talking to a couple of nurses and maybe even the surgeon himself. But they don't understand the sort of careful, thorough principles of law that govern the question of what is real evidence and how much evidence is necessary to convict. And so there's a lot of sloppy true crime out there that just that generates unjustified doubts about the justice system. And that's a problem because there are lots of justified doubts about the justice system. But as the economist John Gresham said, bad money drives out good. So sloppy true crime that just assumes somebody is innocent and then seizes upon a couple of partisan arguments will reach a lot of people and convince them. Whereas careful, thorough analysis that really identifies the specific cases that are problematic, it's too boring. It takes too long. You know, my articles were 24,000 words. Who has that time? And uh, so, you know, I would say that, and the question about why women are so attracted to it, which it's fascinating. I mean, I don't understand it. I can't even hope to try to explain. Uh, but, you know, I've, of course, I've actually, I've worked very closely with female producers and writers and researchers and lawyers in the work that I've done on true crime cases. And, uh, and basically, I, you know, I can't really generalize. I think part of it is, first of all, just, you know, the grand guignol aspect. Everybody likes a story of blood and death and murder, um, which is just natural for anybody. But there's also perhaps, you know, an aspect that, you know, Margaret Atwood says, men are afraid we will ridicule them. Women are afraid men will kill us. And there could be certainly an aspect of self-preservation. How do I identify whether somebody, you know, some man I know could theoretically pose a danger to me? What are the signals and what are, you know, what, what sort of personality traits should I be looking out for? And also, I think I can, you know, we can say that women are a little bit more attuned to and interested in social relations than men are. We tend to be a little bit more, you know, you know, rotating objects in our minds. And there's, you know, a little bit of cognitive psychology behind this. And so women are fascinated, as we all are, but maybe a little bit more about what are the personality dynamics that drive someone to kill especially which drives somebody to kill somebody they know. And so these are, I mean, this is all just speculation, but, uh, but it is a really interesting pattern why women would be, you know, cause you think about who read, you know, manly, uh, 
Sam Spade novels and Mickey Spillane novels in the 1950s. Well, that was mainly men. And now the, you know, stories that are true Spillane and Spade novels where people actually do get killed. The audience for that is mainly women. It's really interesting to wonder about that. It is. I mean, especially when, when nonfiction now is so synonymous with the only thing that men read, they've abandoned fiction. But the one exception is this true crime thing. I mean, I was just exposed to it sort of anecdotally with I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the Michelle McNamara book and then documentary. And when you start seeing clips of crime con and I mean, to, to your point, I understand the, the whole evolutionary reason of wanting to protect yourself and I can sort of see what not to do and that sort of thing. But that not at all is representative of the tonality of the kind of people who show up at CrimeCon, it is jubilant. And yeah, the, yeah. The, the more disgusting and grotesque the details, the more thrilled and orgasmic is the response from those crowds. And I just thought, is anybody talking about this? And so I, I had on <laughs> Rachel Monroe, who did a whole book about from yeah. New Yorker about women's relationship to true crime. And and I mean, who, who am I, straight white male, to, to sort of cast aspersions about what it is, but it was just weird to, to see. And uh, I mean, even in Michelle McNamara's case that um, she is putting herself into the story saying, um, I don't know any of these people who were murdered by the Golden State Killer. I, I, it hasn't impacted on me negatively, but I'm not being a very good wife to my husband and I'm not being a good mother to my infant daughter. I am a victim. He did it to me. And I thought, no, he didn't. <laughs> you have <laughs> volunteered. <laughs> There's a difference. Like you're you're not one of the women who were murdered or raped by by this horrible serial killer, but you want to be join that group in some way. Why is there no pushback about this? That this is like you you get no criticism for being negligent with your child or or your husband or or helping the relationship and i kind of don't know what else you're doing in your life other than internet sleuthing i, I don't know it just seemed very yeah. odd the 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 participation of the fandom in online sleuthing as serial demonstrated is itself like a interesting dynamic of fandom where not not many genres offer that that suddenly you can not just go down a rabbit hole but but seemingly you're participating in this noble purpose of of redeeming somebody who's been convicted or bringing down a serial killer who hasn't been caught it's just fascinating dynamic it really is i mean also to well since we're since we're gleefully engaging in what some might call stereotypes there's also savior syndrome. Yeah. And so, you know, when I was visiting convicts on death row in Texas at the Ellington unit and then later the Polunsky unit, I would go there and talk to my client and all of the people next to me were women, mostly middle-aged, but some of them were young and about half of them came from Europe. They came from Norway, they came from Sweden, Germany, France, the UK, etc. Some of them married my clients and, you know, acted as the primary conduit of information and gateway. And it was always women. I mean, you never saw, first of all, there are, 
are, are almost no female killers. Actually, female killers do get marriage proposals from men. Definitely. That definitely happens. But since 90% of killers are males, most of them get marriage proposals and offers of friendship and romance and even X-rated pictures from women. Of yeah. course, it's a small, small subset of females. But I think there's a little bit more of a tendency among women to develop a sort of parasocial relationship with a killer behind bars. They can't ever actually meet him or, you know, go out with him, et cetera. But, and then they focus on the, we, he's convinced me he's innocent. He's a victim. He's, he needs to be protected. He needs to be helped. And that is just something that every single criminal lawyer encounters all the time, especially on death row, because death row cases get all the publicity, all the attention all over the world. And so you have women coming from all over the world to visit some fat 300 pound, you know, pasty faced child molesting murderer in rural Texas. And they marry that man and they go live in a trailer next to the prison so that they can visit him as many times as possible. And these women are sometimes, you know, one of the women who visited one of my clients, she was like a successful optician in Italy who ran her own uh, chain of optician stores. And she gave all of that up and moved to Texas to live in a trailer. These stories go on and on. It's something it's, I mean, the psychological term for, for it is hubristophilia. Hubristophilia. So hubris from Greek for excessive pride. And the idea is that for a very, of course, a very tiny subset, mostly of women, a very tiny subset. This is not the general rule. We must add that just so we don't get canceled. Um, But for a tiny subset, there is this obsession with men who are violent, who break rules, who do extreme things. And even who have sociopathic or psychologically deviant tendencies. They have the dark triad of psychopathic personality traits, narcissism and exploitativeness and impulsivity. These are the bad boys that a certain subset of women fall for. And that goes double or triple for people who are men who are in death row for murder. And so it's not a majority phenomenon. I don't want to. Uh, no. You know, but no. Uh, but it's definitely there. Everyone knows it. Every criminal defense lawyer knows it. Prison guards know it. Prison wardens know it. They have special protocols for the girlfriends and wives of death row inmates. So it is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's strange. And I don't know that it's that different. I mean, you go to Dealey Plaza, you're going to see tourists gleefully being photographed in the exact place where Kennedy's head was blown off. I mean, it's macabre. I, oh, yeah. I don't understand what distance is required emotionally to sort of celebrate. It was here and posing next to it. It's like trophy, uh, hunting trophy photos with a dead animal and you see a, a couple kissing. It's it's just bizarre. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I guess just, sorry, just absolute last thing is... If you could speak to uh, where where I grew up in Vancouver, I, I would go to a, a boxing gym when I was a teenager, 
And it was actually a hunting ground for one of Canada's most notorious serial killers who was hunting down predominantly prostitutes in the area. His name was Robert Picton. I think he's confessed to 49 victims in all. He was convicted for six, charged for 26 uh, over the course of 1983 to 2002 was while he was there. Um, this is a little bit like the Grim Sleeper, where there's a documentary oh, yeah, about yeah. In, in California where this horrible designation by the local, the LAPD was no human involved because it was all African-American, predominantly prostitutes yeah. who were murdered yeah, yeah. in that. Um, I think this was treated very similarly in Vancouver because predominantly they were indigenous women, uh, often underage, that Robert Picton was hunting. He was a pig farmer. He'd bring back the prostitutes from Vancouver to his farm and feed them, feed them to his pigs. But the police didn't seem to care because it wasn't the right kind of victim for what society deems worthy of interest on some level. Um, the poly class case in particular, back back from I think the mid-1990s, um, the sister of Polly Class just took out an op-ed in the in the New York Times and she talked about this. I read that, yeah. Yeah. So my sister happens to look the way um white America wants and the media wants a victim to look so that we can inculcate this reality distortion of who are really the victims of this kind of crime. Um, and I say this as a kid of a child protection lawyer, like I was terrorized as a child about being kidnapped by some guy in a van, but 99.8% of kidnappings are parental abductions or runaway. Mm -hmm. It's not to say it doesn't happen. It's just to say you're more likely to die dealing with a vending machine than you are at the hands of a kidnapping murderer statistically and i'm not actually exaggerating you are more likely oh, yeah. to die with a vending machine than than to get murdered by a kidnapper so could you speak to that like the this sense that america has right now i know you're not in america but um that crime is going up it's never been more dangerous when in fact the last 30 years it's gone off a cliff it's never been kind of safer to be in the country but the perception is there and then there's this added intrigue that is stoked from true crime i just find that whole dynamic very bizarre and and perverse yeah i mean the the saying among american news uh, journalists and news hounds for years has been, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. And so a lot of that is due to local coverage. So I mean, local news coverage in America, it's, it's sometimes a little bit more honest because it goes into who's actually doing the crimes, but it also focuses on the kinds of crimes that are statistically really insignificant. And frankly, the perceptions that Americans have about how much crime there is in their society is completely off the charts incorrect. Yeah. They have, you know, the vast majority of people don't have college degrees. They don't have any reason to think about abstract social problems like how crime statistics are collected. They just go about, you know, go from what they read on the local, you know, in their newspaper, if there is a local newspaper, which there often isn't, or on nationwide news channels and internet sites, which are the primary sources where people get the information. And of course, you know, victims of crime who are white and articulate and educated and seemingly did nothing to deserve what happened to them 
get the most attention and get the most coverage. And that's base. I mean, it's been the case for quite a while. So all of the, 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 you know, all the true crime cases, you know, Polly class was obviously abducted from her suburban home. And that also goes into another psychological dynamic, which is that people are much more fascinated by random crime that could happen to anybody than by crime that happens within a certain social environment. So if you're, you know, a drug dealer who's dealing meth in Omaha, Nebraska, and you just stiffed the guy above you in the organization, and he drives by and blows your head off and then shoots a couple of rounds into your trailer, nobody cares about that because people think, well, he was a meth dealer. He was involved in criminal activity, and, you know, his family was obviously terrorized by these gunshots and now has lost their provider, but you know, who cares from the sort of personal attribution American perspective while well, he was doing wrong stuff, live by the sword, die by the sword. And that goes for, you know, 85, 90% of all murders, 85, 90% of all murders are within criminal organizations or criminal environments or criminal milieu in which people are just, you know, either they're punishing somebody for screwing with the mores of the group or there was some ridiculous insult in a bar or in a nightclub and then you know some guy insults another guy in a nightclub and the other guy says once you come out i'm gonna blow your fucking head off and then the other guy comes out and the insulted guy does it and whether we like it or not those kinds of crimes nobody cares about them because people generally just tend to assume, well, everybody involved in this criminal incident is, you know, is morally dirty from the very beginning. And it's, you know, it's young males blowing off steam. You know, boys are going to be boys and they're angry. They're hot headed. And they, you know, some guy just popped off and shot another guy. And then maybe there's, you know, there's a shootout afterward. So, you know, if you look at average local crime stories in the United States and also in, you know, places like Toronto and Montreal, even a little bit in Vancouver, if you look at the average modal, median, most common incidents of murder, it's going to be in some criminal subculture among people who regularly carry guns and who get angry at each other and fire randomly into a crowd and kill one person, injure four or five other people the the, you know, as the New York times in 2017 ran a story in which they evaluated all of the mass shootings in the United States. And they classified these shootings as shootings in which, uh, I believe it was over four people were injured directly by gunshots. And what they found out in this huge analysis and study of thousands of cases is that 75% of these mass shootings were among black people all over the United States, which is, you know, a very sad fact that we all need to be concerned about, but it's a fact. So, you know, incidents in which, you know, some mentally disturbed person goes into a school or a mall and begins shooting people 
they get all the coverage. That is the man bites dog story. But the dog bites man story is of criminal subcultures that, you know, exist in all ethnicities and all areas of the USA where a lot of people have guns. And so that is the average modal instance of a lot of people getting shot. True crime doesn't care a whit about any of these people because, first of all, it's too politically sensitive for some audiences. And second of all, it's people who may not be very articulate or engaging and they can't put their views across very well, unlike Adnan Syed, for instance. Or, and they're not people who are prosperous and important. People who you think, oh, this person could have contributed a lot to society if they'd lived. You know what? A lot of people who get murdered, and of course, every single murder is horrifying and must be punished and must be investigated, but a lot of people who get murdered aren't particularly gifted. And they're just ordinary people, maybe with some criminal tendencies, who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. And the other thing is, true crime cases, there are a lot of fake true crime cases. I would say Adnan Syed is a fake true crime case. He's not really innocent. But I've had clients on death row that I represented. And, you know, I've talked to hundreds of criminal defense lawyers. And they've had a lot of clients who they say, this guy really is innocent, but I can't get any attention to his case. Yeah, it's, in- it's, it's interesting. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you um, for making time to talk about this. And it's fascinating to read your work. And you mentioned David Simon. It was very interesting to see just how much he pushed out on social media, um, just appreciating what you did so dispassionately over the last year or so that you worked on this. Yeah, he's an idol of mine. And so, you know, when I die, I'm going to put that on my headstone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, thanks again. I really appreciate your time, Andrew. You're welcome. It was a fascinating conversation. Thanks very much. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcone Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.